Hey, I'm Savio Vega, WPOB, quarantine, my way or the highway. Welcome to another edition of WPOV Quarantine. I'm your host, the legend T. James Logan, and with me, a big cast of stars we got this week. We have, of course, our co-hosts, the Lone Wolf Andy Anderson. Howdy. <laughs> and we have the gentleman, Elio Canella. Good to be here. And we have semi-regular, Chief Atacula Kula. Thanks for having me back. And welcoming first time to the show, Bushwhacker Luke, one of the legendary halves of you knew him as the Bushwhacker, even more as the Kiwi Sheep Herders. Luke, welcome to the show. Whoa, good day, mateys. It's great to be on your show. Let's get the bastard started. <laughs> you heard the man. Yeah, let's get it started, mate. I'm roaring to go to tell you, to tell you a lot of lies in the business. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Well, you know what? We're here to talk about the uh, territory days. And uh, here's some guys who either know it and loved it or were a part of it. And so let's get started talking about it. First of all, I want to ask Luke. Luke, you were definitely a guy who competed in the territory days. Boy. What was it was obviously quite a bit different than when uh, you went to the WWE and, and had a whole different kind of system. different, mate. Completely different. In the territorial days, I was known as a wrestler. When I went to WWE, it changed. I became a celebrity. It was a whole different ball game. Territory days, people say to you, a lot of the fans would say to you, hey, or not the fans, but the street, the street smart people would say wrestling was bullshit. You know how it was and that. But when I went to mm -hmm. WWF, businessmen from all ages would come up and say, Thank you. You you entertained the whole family from my kids to my grandparents. Ah, and so looking at that really quickly, what was your preference? What did you enjoy? I mean, obviously the pay was much better, but yeah, what, but what... I well, I, my preference, of course, being the bad guy, being mm -hmm. a sheep herder. Or well, before that, I was when I started, I was Sweet William, a fag, yeah. and um, that was in the. That was in the early 60s, mate. Mm -hmm. And I guess a lot of you people weren't born in the early 60s. Not me. Anyhow, <laughs> when I first come out, getting started, my first appearance in, in North America was in Canada. We were brought to the Canada by a well-known tag team, the Vachons. Mm. Morris Vachon and Butcher Vachon, Paul Vachon. You know, Mad Dog Vachon and Butcher Vachon, Paul and Morris. And um, at that time, the hottest place in North America for wrestling was Ontario and Quebec. Now, I didn't realize that at the time, but I've heard now through many channels that people talk about the business in the 70s, early 70s, Quebec and Ontario, you know, the gardens and the gardens in Toronto, that was one of the hottest places. And of course, the Quebec Territory, there was two promotions. The Rougeaus were running against the Vachon promotion, which was Grand Prix. 
and it was owned by the uh, Vachons and Edward Caponte, Edward Capontier, who who became an announcer, a, a, a voiceover man for um, WWF, the Spanish, the um, French. He used to do the French for WWF. Anyhow, that was our first thing. And of course, when we came in there, the main heel was Killer Kowalski, who I'd met in the 60s in Australia, 65, 66, and knowing him. And of course, Gene Free, Andre the Giant. He was the main baby face. And Butch and me had wrestled him in New Zealand when, when, he, when he was 350, he was seven foot two, big ass throw and only 350 pounds. He hadn't come to North America yet. And Butch wow. and me worked with him for a month in New Zealand wow. every night. Every night, So we knew them and that, and this place, um, Grand Prix was on fire. It was running three towns a night. And wow. you know, I had, had a crew of 60 people on the road well, that's not, not that's not counting the locals who lived in some of the towns. You only saw them when you when you when you're near their towns or around that the area that I lived in. But um, it, it was doing um, sell-out business. It was unreal. Like when Gene Free, the Andre, came in in the start of '72, to um, it was in February or January '72, and we came in July. June or July, so he'd been there six months before us, and of course, he, you know, as he was the eighth wonder of the world, or whatever they called him, seventh wonder, <laughs> and that he was selling out all the places. So they, even the other towns, the other towns where he wasn't on, were selling out too. The territory was hot. They had Billy Two Rivers, Tarzan Tyler, Jules Besson, um Billy War Eagle. Uh, they had three Indians, Billy White Cloud, and of course, yeah, of course, the main one, Billy Two Rivers. He was the first ever American Indian or North American Indian ever to go over to Europe and England. He was a big name, and of, uh, there were so many t the talents, a lot of a lot of guys from the states, and of course Canadians there. So it was packed. The Grand Prix was a big office. It had a it had a floor with a ring and with a lounge chairs around it, chrome ring posts, and a running track, <laughs> wow. a spring-loaded spring running track around the ring. Then at the next floor down, it had a gym below that, weightlifting gym, and the office was on the top floor. Yeah, it, it was a big business, a real mm. big business. And then, of course, they're running all over Quebec and Ontario, and, of course, some... Um, some some of uh, the top states, the top the cities in Vermont. We were working two or three cities in Vermont, you know, would, which was close to Montreal. Would just drive in there and and, and drive back. Wow, incredible! Big, of course, um, we came in and and Butch was Butch was Brute Miller, and it was Sweet William and Brute Miller. Well, we were doing the Beauty and the Beast thing. Oh. We've been doing it. We've been doing that for about six years. Were you the beauty or the beast, Mike? I was. I was the beauty. You I was had the long blonde hair and the, and the gown. And, and, and I was Sweet William and Brute. And they said, "There's been so many brutes here. 
brute Barnard and uh, someone else was a brute there that they they changed Butch's name to um, Paul Vachon looked around in the office there and saw a paperback lying there and it was Nick Carter he was a he was detective series and a paperback yeah yeah and that, he says your name is Nick Carter crazy Nick Carter and of course <laughs> at the time I was leading around I was leading Butch on a chain. He had a collar around his neck and I was leading to the ring and the chain. So they called him Crazy Nick Carter. And there you are. Now, now the first hey, now this is, now I'm telling you that, that was the positive side. Here's a little negativity. <laughs> <laughs> we come we had we hadn't been used to doing interviews. And of course, you know, they had TV in Sherbrooke. And they had another TV out of Montreal. You know, we did a lot of t two TVs each, um, not each week, but we, every two weeks. One week we'd do Sherbrooke, the next week we'd do Montreal, and we'd do numerous shows. Anyhow, they put the first time they put a mic in front of us. Now, being, being the same one, the Sweet William, I was supposed to do the talking. And they told me what to say. They, you know, didn't they never told you word to word. They yeah. just told you the, where to go. You know, yeah. what I mean? not to help. Maybe sometimes it's like that. And then, you know, they wanted to come up with a final. And I went in front of that mic, and I went to talk, and I went, ah, 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 So we tried three times, and it was still, uh, uh, and that's that. But then Butch started, Butch started doing the talking, and then that, uh -huh. that was it. He was talking all over the place, and he would go down on his back and kick his legs and get up talking. Oh, <laughs> Capone, and, and they loved that bullshit. Anyhow, started, they loved that bullshit. So, um, so we're on the road, and that, and after a couple of weeks of television in, in the other towns, we were the main. If we weren't in the main town with Andre and the main crew and the other towns, we were one of the main events right from the word go. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Back in those days, and you know, it would be three towns, one of the smaller towns or the next town. So that was our start in the business. And uh, <laughs> we were there for three years. And the, the Hollywood Blondes were there then too. Jerry Brown and Dale Roberts. Dale Roberts became one of the um, Freebirds. Freebirds. Free yeah. And Jerry Brown was, uh, he was notorious, yeah, for a lot of things. <laughs> he, he, put a, he put a bomb in Bill Watts' um, mailbox, but it was a big, it was a big clock with a ticking sound all wrapped up. Bill Watts find him, fired him. And this is just a story of jumping off track here. And I got to put a, I got to put a bit of humour in there. And, and, and so he put this bloody package in Bill Watts's mailbox, and then parked across the road just down the street. And Bill Watts could see his car there. He stayed there for two days. And Bill Watts called the Bill Watts went to get the mail and heard the tick, and he called the bomb squad. Outstanding. He, he didn't fucking. He didn't know that Jerry Brown, he played heavy ribs. You know, he was pissed off with the Watts. Anyhow, they were the main, main tag team, and they had and they had Humperdinck, so Oliver Humperdinck as their manager. Yeah, yeah. And he was one of the notorious managers 
of the of the early 70s and the 70s you know he's from florida he's from minnesota but he was based in florida and that and he he was a, a manager for many big stars in you know florida championship wrestling in the 70s and that and anyhow they were crazy guys yeah. okay the, the hollywood blondes were wild well, I just want to ask a quick question, Luke, and this was just concerning, uh, curious to me. We had done recently a thing about heat and how, like, uh, certain people would get certain play on certain things to get the, the fans riled up. Uh, when you were playing uh, Sweet Luke, right? Sweet um, William. Or Sweet William, sorry, Sweet William. Uh, you obviously didn't really drive people. Did they really believe that you were a gay character and that's why they were so enraged? Well... I was a more or less a sissy of the two, and mm -hmm. Butch was the bully. You know, the, the when the baby faces come in, they, you know, I'd be on top, and then they'd get back on top of me, and Butch would have to come in and and cut them off again and feed them to me, so I could go back on top, so the people would know. You know, I got, I got heat. I was like a Chris Chris Holt, someone like that, that got heat from the bumps and from backing off and all that sort of shit. Okay, okay. You know what I mean? You know, the, the contrast was I was, uh, you know, backing off and begging and, and then handed me the guy and I'd, I'd F around the eyes and, and get on top and, and do the sort of cheat, a lot of cheating stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And okay. then Butch would come in and just be the bully. Okay. Now, you said the, the Grand Prix... Uh promotion at this time was so incredibly big it sounds very lavish for what we uh, consider a territory um now i, I want to throw this question over to vance nevada uh, vance i know you study lots of territories uh grand prix uh, i had never known was there what was people's uh what was its comparison to other territories in canada at the time was it that much ahead of people that it was noticeable you know i think it's really you know the comment is about the montreal territory itself so you know, Montreal had been running since 1965 under the Rougeos. Uh, and it was actually, you know, sort of this, this growing contingent of guys uh, that, that were kind of bitter about Rougeau's success, maybe a little bit of jealousy there. So it started with Yvonne Robert, uh, who was snubbed by Rougeau when he started in 65. You know, Yvonne Robert was sort of like the heir apparent to the empire when Eddie Quinn died. Uh, so Rougeau decides to go ahead and do it. And he actually used Yvonne Robert's tapes to get his own TV deal. Uh, so Rougeau was running. You had these guys like the Vachans who were Quebec guys who were never uh, given a main event opportunity under Eddie Quinn. Uh, see uh, Johnny Rougeau and his brother making lots of money. And they said, hey, we need to get in there. So, um, you know, what's really fascinating about, you know, that era of, of Montreal at that time. And, and when I look at the records, I just think like I was born way too late is you had the Rougeaus running a full schedule seven nights a week, uh, sometimes running two towns a night. And you also had Grand Prix running Quebec two nights a week, uh, you know, or, or sorry, two towns a night, seven nights a week, uh, both with television uh, both trying to outdo each other. And so you would see like just this escalation, you know, in the newspaper ads where, you know, they're like making a big deal of 20 wrestlers on this show, 10 matches, uh, you know, and each trying to outdo each other. And it really started with uh, the Rougeaus 
drawing 22,000 at Jerry Park in Montreal in the summer of 72. That really was the drive for the Vachons to outdo it. The following summer, 73, drawing 29,000 in yep. Jerry Park. Oh, like, I, was, I was on that card. I've got to tell you about the match, too, in a minute. And that even Robert, even Robert was in, in the office. I went to, when I meant to say there was a blind man who was in the office, too, and I can't remember his name. The other gentleman might know in, in Grand Prix office. Who was the blind man? Uh, I'm not sure of the, the blind guy. Lucien Gregoire, maybe? Yeah, Lucien Gregoire. He had something to do in that office. He claimed to be blind, but he stood at the back of the arenas and the matches, and he knew what was going on. <laughs> so, you know, the bullshit about the blind man and that, but uh, even Robert was in the office there, too. He was in the office with um, Caponzier and the Vachons. Yeah. Butcher Vachon came into a lot of money. Is another story. Anyhow, that's where the, a lot of the money came from. Okay. They had, okay. A big, they had a big television truck, their own uh, 18-wheelers. You know, it, it was a big business. And, of course, the Rougeos had Abdullah. The, at this time, the Duke had jumped over to um, Rougeau because he was, the Duke was supposed to be in Jerry Park with, um, with Morris Deshaun, or with, or with Killer Korski, I mean. And um, they had to change that match, and it was um, Morris Deshaun and Killer Kowalski. They did the they did the same angle that that um, that whip, 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 is it Whipper Billy Watson. Yeah, yeah, with the ear, and that and Morris Morris kicked his ear so bad, you know, the, the, if you kick gig your ear, the blood just starts flowing, and of course. When it came to do a big show, you know, you can imagine how Morris just grabbed the blade and went. <sighs> Gee whiz! Yeah, nice. but but we got twenty, <laughs> we got twenty nine, just under twenty nine and a half thousand people there. You know, That's that amazing. was as the general, as the other gentleman was saying, that broke records. That was one of the big records in North America at the time. Apart from the ballpark, well, well, Vince came along and. And did the boxing and wrestling, and did in Shea Stadium, and I think he did forty six thousand. Okay. Right, now, right. Be- before, but by, sorry, but by comparison, Tom, you know, yes. uh, around that same time, there was like an article in the newspaper. I've got the clipping, and it was talking about Madison Square Garden had its biggest crowd ever, thirteen thousand people. Oh wow! And, wow. And, and Montreal was regularly outdrawing. Like there was probably like a dozen cards that were in that seventeen to nineteen to twenty thousand range, excluding the Jerry Park shows. So yeah. just like the forum, unbelievable. The forum was filling out every time. Well, you know? that's it, it's interesting too. I mean, if, if we're going to touch on Memphis later, because. Yeah. Reading and reading some of the stuff about Memphis, like even then, like what a hotbed it was compared to New York, because they'd say, okay, well, you know, Madison Square Garden, 13,000, 16,000. But I mean, like from what I was reading with the, the Mid South Coliseum, you know, they were packing that weekly. And I mean, this is like the, the, the totals, uh, I can't remember what year it was, but they were saying like one year, you know, it was, it was like, like over, geez. 100,000, maybe 200,000 people in, in Memphis in the midst of Coliseum for that year because they were running weekly to where Madison Square Garden was, you know, running monthly. 
Yeah, they were putting uh, 8,000 people in, in, in Memphis every Monday night. There you go. Yeah. Wow. Every Monday I was there. I was there for many Monday nights, mate. <laughs> yeah. That's one thing I said to Jerry Jarrett. I said, we... We always, we had an angle with the fabulous ones that were selling out the whole territory. We had a four four or five months run there with just doing angles all the time. The fabulous ones and us. And yeah, that, yeah. we laid out a program at Jerry's place and went with it. And we did gimmick matches. We built up and then we'd have a blow off. Then we'd come up with another, set another small angle and then come up with another, build for another gimmick. And that and we were going to Memphis, Billy, uh, um, um, Jerry wasn't working. He he just worked now and again in Memphis. But every time we came into Memphis and we had a, a really hot angle and that he would bring in the AWA champion and put hair against belt and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and, yeah. And that he would, no angle, just the, just the verbal thing. And... I was getting paid five hundred at each time for Memphis when we when we've been working around the territory every night selling out. They come to Memphis and someone else had gone top. That's the first time I said to Jerry, "What? The, hey, this is not right." <laughs> I complained about it. He said, "Well, Jerry Jerry owns a third of Memphis. He owned a third then till the, till he did the uh, gimmick and when they right. where he's tried to steal the territory." That's it. <laughs> I was there when that, and that was the finish. That was the finish of me in there, because I was a, I was a, a Jarrett man and a Dundee man. Anyhow, we ju- we're jumping. We jumped yeah, from. Yeah, no, that's okay. We'll get back to it, and we'll get across to it. My, my next thing is I want to kind of laterally move across Canada now over into Western Canada, and uh, talk a bit about. Of course, we'd have to talk about Stampede Wrestling, which was. Uh, a very big uh, promotion within uh, Western Canada. Now, Luke, did you did you uh, compete at all in in uh, Stampede Wrestling? Yeah, that's after about a year and a half. The um, they said the office said to us, you know, that we've been winning, or getting put over all the time, or doing angles, and you know, we worked with, we worked with Kowalski, we worked with the Giant and Capontier every night for a while. We worked with everybody there. The two Indians, the Italians, Gino Brito and Dino Bravo. Dino was only 19 when we first came there. And uh, so we'd worked with a lot of the guys there. And then they said, um, you know, if you stay on, we'd have to start usually putting people over, but we'd like to you to come back. You know, we, we've, talked to, we've talked to this other promoter at Stampede, and um, he wants you to come in there. Now, we never knew who Stu Hart was, or we never knew Stampede, how notorious it was. It was <laughs> the, the dungeon. Anyhow. Did you make it so, to the dungeon? Did you get, hey, uh, hey, did you get stretched? I, I'm just going to start. I'm just going to start on this. So we go over there on a Thursday night. Friday night is the pavilion. That's where they, that, that holds about 3,000 to 4,000. Any of you has been in the pavilion? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What do you say? Three thousand? About three thousand, yeah. Three thousand, right? And now at that time there were there was the in in the park, this was the the stampede fairgrounds. You know the fairgrounds, they had the corral there. Yeah. Now now the corral's the saddle dome now, but the corral was only eight or twelve thousand people. 
I'm not sure. Mate, what was it? Eight, Vance, eight, do you know? Yeah, to be eight, around the 8,000, yeah. Eight to, eight to 10, anyhow. Now, the, the first night we were there, we're working against the champs and we're getting discovered, decoded. And then we're working with them. I think we had the flagpole, New Zealand flagpole. It was a, it was a tubular, tube. it wasn't light. It was steam pipe with the flag <laughs> and it was screwed together. You know you know what steam pipe is? It's a heavy, heavy, but we used to know how to hit with it without hurting people. Anyhow, and we had a thing in the middle where you screwed it so we could carry it in a bag. So it would go in half, right? So we 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 um, had it in the corner. I think grabbed it and knocked them both down and bloodied them up. Next minute, this guy comes out and starts throwing these kids in the ring. Now the kids are from ten or eleven to to thirteen or fourteen, and there's four of them. Two of them have been gigged. Two of them are bleeding. Jeez. And that and the guy out the outside is throwing them in. You can guess who's throwing them in. I won't say it yet. And he and he yells out, <laughs> champ. Andy, Andy will know straight away. Champ, champ. <laughs> beat him up, beat him up, champ, beat him up, beat him up. <laughs> so we put the boots of these fucking kids. And then and then I, then we leave the when they're all laying down stead, we leave the ring and head back to the dressing room. Now before we went out, we Stu Hart wasn't there. Archie Goldie was the booker at the time, the, the Mongolian stomper. Yeah. When we went back to walk through the dressing room, right on the entrance, when you go in, and you know, there's rooms on the left, there's rooms on the right, there's a hallway, there's fucking Stu standing there. And now we didn't know it was Stu, but by the time we got there, you know, Stu was wider than the hips, you know, about 5'10, but thick, very thick, 270. Yeah. 275, he says, what the fuck are you doing? They're my kids. <laughs> and, 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 and I says, uh, the guy told us that it was Abdullah who was throwing them in the ring. <laughs> Abdullah, of course it was. Yeah. Of course it was. <laughs> and of course, Abdullah, Abdullah, he was in the territory and he knew he, he needed help to keep the cards up high. And that, so um, that's how that was our first night. Now, the televisions played at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning, right? So the people have seen us. The kids are well-known. Yep. You know, they're well-known on TV there. And the kids, the fans see it. Now, we didn't know, but this weekend, it was a double shot. Three times a year, they do the pavilion on a Friday and do the corral on a Sunday afternoon. You know, if any of you has been there at that yeah. period of time, you would have yeah. known that. So, so were they doing? Out, were they doing this Saturday? Were they doing the Edmonton Saturday night then? Is that like? Yeah, Saturday yeah. night. But Edmonton was bicycled. They never saw that. They never saw us for the following week. Yeah, right. that's right. right. So when yeah. I went out and so when we went out in Edmonton and that we were we didn't get any heat till we yeah. worked in the match. You know, we had to dig and get our own heat there, just like we did when we first came in into Calgary that night. Anyhow, um, when Sunday when we went out, people were throwing stuff at us. We had we had heat, but we didn't have drawing heat. You know what I mean? We just had heat, what you call it, not artificially. People were pissed off at us and were throwing us because we beat up the kids. Right. And of course, yeah. they did, and we won the belts that night. It was return match and we won the belts. But that was our first weekend working for Stu. 
Anyhow, getting to the, getting to the dungeon, we Archie left, and and then we were called up every Sunday. Stu would get us to come up to his home and had to eat. You heard, you know about the cats and the shit. Anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, you know, and, and that and he he would go down the dungeon, and some of the boys would come in the afternoon just to be in the dungeon because we'd have a close shot Sunday night, and Stu would get them to go on their hands and knees. He would he would never get them to fight for he would never fight for the hold. He would get them to go on their hands and knees. He would put the hold on and then tell them to fight out of it. But they right. could never. He, he was so thick in the hips and thick legs that he'd hold that hold on them and, and put the pressure on, you know, put the pressure on so much that their eyes would fucking pop. The veins would pop <laughs> in their eyes or they, or they couldn't even talk sometimes. Shoo, shoo, and they'd shit their pants or piss themselves. Oh, this geez. is true. This is true because Brett, Brett had Brett, Brett in the in the eighties when I was in WWF. He had tapes that he taped, you know, vi not video, you know, audio tapes of guys screaming while Dad put the put a sugar hold on them. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that was Stu in the dungeon. Anyhow, we ended up helping with doing the sort of booking for the territory after Archie went. We were, we were there for another year, and that and, and you know we were called more or less me calling the shots. We were every night we were the last match unless we had bought some some Abdullah for the weekend, and Abdullah we got someone else to come in to work against Abdullah. Right now, the question I have is: um, now that you're at this part at Stampede, are you still wrestling as uh, Sweet William, or have you guys? I become the sheep herders yet? No, later on? Sweet William, Sweet William, and and Nick Carter. Okay, and, perfect. And I was still knowing my real my name was Ted Williams when I come over, but I couldn't tell. No one could call me Ted Ted Williams because he was a big star in baseball. That's right, yeah. And that so you know so it wasn't until I went into the states full time that they. They said, you know, the sheep herders, the name that we got, the sheep herder name and that. And they said, Luke, Luke's a real farmhand. Luke is a farmhand name, you know, because sheep chasing, herding sheep and all that. So yeah. Luke, I got the name Luke Williams. And that, and then, and then Butch went back to Butch Miller, you know. He went from Brute to Butch Miller. Okay. Now, Here's an interesting question I have because geographically, I don't know Quebec enough. And I know your guys are wrestling constantly all around Quebec. Then I do know about being out here in Alberta. And in, and there, I know that during the territories at this time, you really had a lot of car driving to do between shows. Oh, was, it, yeah. was it as crazy in Quebec as that? Or was oh, it worse mate, in Western? Mate, in Quebec, we stayed in little hotels. We'd go on the road and they had good deals and little hotels everywhere. And there was only one place we stayed in, and that was Wednesday night. We would, um, Monday, was it Left Bridge, uh, Monday, Red Deer, no, or Left Bridge Monday, Red Deer Tuesday, and then Saskatoon Wednesday. We would oh. stay over in Saskatoon and then get a late checkout, a late checkout, drive to uh, Regina, 
Yeah, wow. And, and drive to, which is only an hour and a half away, do that show, and that was an hour difference from um, from uh, Calgary, and then we'd, we'd say it would be 10 o'clock, and then we'd leave that 550-mile run from, from Regina to Calgary. Now, oh, in the winter, that was a bitch. Sometimes the roads <laughs> no were closed. Kidding. And that we were told all the roads were closed, but we would have to get through because, you know, we had Friday, we, we had to get some sleep and that, and then we had to do TV Friday night. Right. So that Regina, and Regina was always sold out on a Thursday night. Okay. That, that was always sold out. The fucking um, Saskatoon would be, that, that arena would be about half full, but it was a big arena of Saskatoon. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it held, but it was about half the worst. The worst town in the territory, Red, Red Deer, would always was a small town, but it always sold out. But the Monday night in in Lethbridge, even with the giant, even with big names, you know what I mean? Harley yeah. Race, we a big house there would be five six hundred, five or six hundred. Wow, <laughs> could never get that. Could never get that, and I didn't understand why we kept running there. But I found out later that Stu got it for next to nothing. You know the arena, and right. um, and we did that. And it's a sad story there because that's where the uh, Japanese butcher me got these two Japanese guys who were in Montreal, and they were going back to um, they were going back to Japan, and we said, "Could you stay over? Stu will fly you into uh, Calgary." And stay over here for a month, and that so it was a, a tag team for us to work with. It was a tag team that stupid in to get rid of us. You know, he was trying to get rid of us out of the territory as the program went. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And um, and he brought those two in, and that's when Tokyo Joe and Leftbridge, when his car went off the road, and he was at the back of the car getting a bag out of the trunk, where a car braked behind him and slid right off and he was in between when he got jammed in between two cars and got his leg smashed and had to have his leg amputated. Oh. You know, and then, then on he lived in Calgary, you know what I mean? Yeah. He didn't go he was so embarrassed to go home to Japan that that's where he made his home, Calgary. Wow. That is a tragic tale indeed. Now Vance, I, I know you you studied a lot into stampede wrestling and stuff, and and uh, can you give people a rough idea of how big that territory was if you had to drive around it? Is like is that a crazy question to ask? I don't know, I don't know. No, if that's... no, it was a lot a lot of miles in those days. You know, we did a lot of miles. Quebec, we did miles, and that we did it in loops. You know, mm -hmm. we had loops there. Yeah. You understand where you stay over. Yeah. We had one loop, and that was from Calgary to um, to Saskatoon, and that Saskatoon to Regina back home. Now that loop, that was about a five hours drive to Saskatoon, maybe six to Saskatoon, and mm -hmm. then an hour and a half from Saskatoon or two hours from Saskatoon to Regina, and then that. That, that, then that 10-hour 10 10 hour run from Regina to Calgary. Okay. That, that, that is 10 hour, a 10-hour 10 run. The weather, I'm talking about weather and all that. Yeah. Condition. 
That was a miserable run, mate. And back it. then, back then, it's like kind of doing like the Calgary uh, Regina thing. Was it mostly two lane highway back then? I'm trying to think of when the Trans Canada came around. So I don't know if that would have been if that would have been four lane or two lane. It's probably two lane mostly. A lot of Trans Canada still yeah. is actually yeah, two. Yeah, well, especially through Saskatchewan. Four, yeah, yeah. There was four lanes in places, but a lot of two lanes. Okay. Yeah. I remember traveling with Harley Race one weekend. He came in for the World Championship. And would you be travel with him? Harley had his beer after we left Regina or going there. He had a, he had his dozen beer in the car, cold or and that. He had, of course, and he had his gun. And uh, he brought his car up, I think. It was a Grand Am. And that, all I remember traveling at 100, 110 miles an hour. Harley, a beer in one hand. With, on the steering wheel and a gun on the other hand, firing out the window at 110 miles an hour, 120 miles an hour. Oh, the good old days. And, and that was Harley. <laughs> you know, go back in time that, you know, that's that's the 72, that's 73, 73, um, 27, 47 years ago. Wow. That's almost as old as me. <laughs> he was younger. He was in the 30s then, you know, wild, 30. Okay. Now, okay, I'm going to – I got an interesting question here. I'm going to throw this one out to Vance. And, Vance, this one I want to ask is we've talked about Grand Prix uh, financially, and, and you, you realized how you've, you've uh, recorded how much action and stuff was going on. And how comparable was it to the heyday of, say, Stampede Wrestling? Uh, were they e- equitable? Um, what was that like? I do bigger crowds. <laughs> Quebec, Quebec, um, Montreal promotion, bigger crowds. Uh-huh. Much okay. bigger crowds, mate. Bigger, right. bigger readers, a lot of coliseums. All right. Financially, though, Vance, what would you think? Uh, what was what was really uh, going on there financially? You know, I think, you know, you had Toronto and Montreal, you know, those two territories, both drawing big. Uh, and both of those were like two towns a night territories. So you had Toronto and Montreal, both being the big shows. And then you would have crews running two different towns. So when you looked at those cards, you know, you would think financially, like, how were they able to, to finance 10 matches a night? Uh, but you'd have two loops going at the same time. So you'd have two five-match cards happening, and then you would meet back in the center. And it was the same with Toronto. Out in the West, it was really one loop, you know, one town a night. Uh, and so, you know, as, as much pride as we take in Western Canada for Stampede Wrestling or mm-hmm. Vancouver All-Star Wrestling, Toronto and, and Montreal, you know, e- eclipsed us tremendously. And even in the Maritimes, where you had uh, the Cormiers running one one circuit and Emile Dupree running another, they were both running concurrently. And there was no war over the territory. The Cormiers had their towns and an understanding with Dupree that you just don't run, you know, within this, this distance of these towns. And both were making money. And uh, I went, I, I actually went up to there. You know, that was a spinoff. That was, um, the, the Maritimes was a spinoff of um, Grand Prix. They, they got our tapes, plus they, they had their own television up there. And, um, and I worked, went up and worked for um, the, um, not the communists, the... Um, Dupree. D- 
to pray. And I worked against John. I worked one one week. I worked against um, Mad Dog and uh, and Dupree Emil. And then another time, another week, I worked against Don Leo Jonathan. Now he had he had ten percent, I think, of that territory. Yeah, you know, with that and that, and boy, they they both sold out. You know, the week sold out because. Jonathan was a big name up there. And, of course, I was on the big match in the Montreal Forum with the Giants and um, Jonathan, Jonathan, Don Leo Jonathan. That was a match of the century. You know, the one they had in the Forum and went to midnight. And, they, of course, the match was stopped because of the, um, the, the curfew. Thing. And they got it and they had it back again. But... Here was two guys one could do. One was drop kicking and the other one could do kip-ups. Don Leo could do kip-ups. Andre could do drop kicks. How's, how's that? And both men were monsters. Yeah, that is, that's pretty incredible. Unreal. Now, we should probably, before we go into some of the bigger territories down in the States, uh, we should take a look at also at All-Star Wrestling out of, uh, out of the Vancouver area, which also had uh, a television show and its own weekly shows. Uh, Luke, did you ever get a chance to go over to All Star over in Vancouver? Yes, yes. I worked for Don Owens in '79. I was working for Don Owens, and that, and um, and uh, of course, he had part of that territory. Okay. Well, Gene Kaninsky, Gene Kaninsky was there still, and that other guy who was running it. Who's the other guy? Al Tomko. Al Tomko, Al Tomko. yeah, Al Tomko. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing about him. I'm laughing about him and that because we did an angle with him on on the television and and it was whacked with a flag. We whacked him with a flagpole or, or a bit of timber and that instead of spinning around and going down with his back to the camera, he still stood there and gigged right in front of the camera. Here's the promoter, <laughs> and we said we went like this. You know what I mean? You know, that was, um, <laughs> but uh, we were coming up there, and this is a funny thing, too. Gene Kaninsky, his wife had left him, or she died, and that. I think yeah. she, in the garage, she put the, she, she did the, um, the exhaust trip with pipes, and that Thanks. put the tube into the car and suffocated. Anyhow, he was going a bit insane, and he had dropped down in weight, and um, who, whoever we had hot down in, in um, out of Portland Wrestling, Northwest Championship Wrestling, like if we had Buddy Rose was hot as a heel, or we had a babyface hot, they would come up there, and Gene one week would be going against, uh, as a babyface against, you know, Playboy Buddy Rose, and then the following week, he'd be going against um, uh, Jesse Ventura, he'd be a heel one week, and he'd do the same interview, and be a babyface the next week. <laughs> That's an interesting. Uh, yeah, interesting yeah. Anyhow, we used to come up there, and we were, of course, when we were in Northwest Wrestling, the the whole time we were there, apart from the first two months getting over, we worked with Piper and and Rick Martel. We worked with them fourteen months straight. You know, Rick, um, right, Ronnie, Ronnie told me, and we had a consent one time we had. 22 consecutive sellouts in Don Owens's uh, building. You know, Don Owens bought an old supermarket 
I think it was an old supermarket or skating skating place and that and he changed it into an arena and that and built and built um bleachers on wheels. Oh, and he wow. would sell photos, you know, on the phone ahead of time. The internet wasn't alive then. They'd do pre-selling and he would put all the seats, all the pre-sold seats, they would be seating on the floor around and he'd move the and he'd move the bleachers in. And if he sold more more pre-souls, well the bleachers would be back further. <laughs> so it always it always looked like it was, it was full. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Walking no, but, but but he did great business. You know, twenty five hundred every week. You know what I mean? And yeah. he would do a Monday three or four times a year. He would do a, a Saturday night and a Tuesday night because I lost my hair to Roddy on a Saturday night, and Butch came in and challenged him, and he lost his hair on a Tuesday. Both sellouts. <laughs> you know wow. what I mean? I lost my head. I lost my head to him twice. <laughs> Anyhow, no man. Oh, sorry. We worked with Rick Martell. Well, they they were such good workers. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was a well-known territory, Northwest Championship Wrestling, because it was short trips except for one long trip. You know, to um, down to Medford, and that was the longest trip. Okay. Okay. And Vancouver, we used to stay over. We'd drive up to Vancouver, stay over, and do and either do and then do Seattle on the way home. Vancouver used to be a Monday night. Okay. All right. In the so, fairgrounds. In the fairgrounds. All right. So, so uh, just so I get a, a, a very clear understanding, um, Vance, if you could tell us, like, what was the big state at this time of All Star Wrestling? What was its territory exactly? What am I thinking of in my head here when I? Vancouver would do Monday night in Vancouver. Tuesday would be over on the island in Victoria. Wednesday night was television, which they taped out of uh, BC TV Studios, which is now Global in Burnaby. Uh, and then Thursday would be Chilliwack. And, and then uh, they'd have loops. So you'd have like an Okanagan loop. So they might do Kamloops, Kelowna, Osoyoos. Uh, or Vernon, or they do like a northern interior loop where they hit like 100 mile house Prince George uh, and do that loop. And then there was a, a period of time when they had a double crew as well. So you'd have uh, you get together for Monday, Vancouver, Tuesday, Victoria, Wednesday TV. And then you've got a crew that's going down into the States. You'd have Sp- Spokane, Tacoma, some of the border towns, Bellingham, and you got the other crew running the other the other direction. So you had some guys, you know, maybe that, uh, you know, came into the territory, didn't have their work papers to work across the border. Mm-hmm. They were working the Canadian circuit, or maybe they were local guys that were part-timers. They were doing the Canadian towns, and then you had some of the American guys doing the American towns. Kanitsky uh, lived on the American side, didn't he? He did. He lived in Blaine, Washington, just across yes. the line. Yeah. Okay. All right. And when did when did the glory days, would you say, like, because these are obviously, we can... I mean, these territories, some of them still exist in some form, but mm-hmm. what would the glory days say of All-Star? Kind Because, of, you know, they're running two crews. They've got television. Was it the loss of television? What, what, what was it that kind of kind of burst uh, that bubble for a while? It, it was Al Tomko that killed Vancouver. Uh, but, yeah. you know, but, uh, you know, in, in Vancouver, uh, they got television first in 1961, uh, and it was actually a guy who was originally from Edmonton. Uh, his name was Rod Fenton. And he wrestled in the 30s and 40s. 
uh, had started promoting in Arizona. And uh, uh, my my understanding is that he he also liked to bet on the horses. And he got in a little he got in a little trouble in Arizona. Owed some guys some money, so he came back north to Canada uh, to get away from them and partnered with the promoter here. But he was fantastic for business because because he had been in the southern states. Uh, he was actually Rod Fenton was the guy that started Kaniski right out of college football uh, in Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, he was the guy that brought Kaniski back home to Canada originally. But in the 60s, you had, you know, uh, a stronger relationship with the Portland Territory. So you could, you could trade talent back and forth. And it's only about five hours from Vancouver to Portland. Uh, but then you had, like, this tremendous talent coming in. Like Don Leo Jonathan came in in 64. And then you had Kaniski win the world title uh, as the homegrown guy in 66. Uh, so tremendous opportunity for Vancouver. So I would say like, you know, 65 to 75 was kind of like the hot time for Vancouver. There was, a, the other, mate, there was another promoter too. In the, in the 70s, when I went over there the first time, the other promoter, the promoter there in, in Vancouver, before, to, to, before Tonko. Vander Kovacs. Vander Kovacs. Nice gentleman. He was a yeah. nice gentleman. To me, anyhow. Yeah. Okay. Well, you before know what? We move on to the, uh, before yeah. we move on to the American territories, yeah. Tom, I got, I got to tell you, because I've, I've been, uh, been digging it up. Did you know yes. that of all the tag teams in the history of Canadian wrestling, okay. the Sheep Herders wrestled more matches than anyone in Canada except two teams? Oh, are you going to ask who those two teams are? No one will get it because the, hey, <laughs> the the number one team they had uh, 441 matches together as a team in Canada was Ivan and Carol Kalmakoff out of Kalmikoffs. the states. The Kalmakoffs from the 50s and 60s. Hey, too bad. Uh, too far for me. Uh, team number two was the Christies. Jerry and Bobby Christie from California, who yeah. were like mainstays for Stu Hart, big baby faces for him uh, in the 60s into 1970. And the number three team, they wrestled more than 300 matches together as a team in Canada, was the Sheep Herders. Wow. Incredible. Good. And That's that, now, You know, before, before I came in to Northwest Championship Wrestling for Don Owens, I, had a, I was working in Hawaii. And that for um, the white Ed Francis had left, and a New Zealand promoter bought it. But we were we, we were living the life there, flying every day, flying over Diamond Head every night, and watching them making Hawaii Five O, <laughs> leaving the beach at five o'clock, getting into the town at seven in another island, and then getting back at at nine thirty ten be back home and Waikiki at 10 o'clock at night. That was an easy territory. We just kept our head above water. Anyhow, after we got out of that and that, and we went to Ronnie Piper come for a show over there and he said, we're short of a tag team in um, Northwest. And he rang up Don Owens. Hence, we got, we, we got into Don Owens' territory. But we had a Japan tour and we had to fill in time. And that, so I called Stu Hart up. I said, I got six weeks off. Hence, he brought us in. And when I left, when I left um, Stu Hart in 85, the end of 85, uh, 75, 1975, you know, 
there was still the big, there was um, big ter- big guys there still. Abdullah, um, John, I forget, he was 325, forget his name, another big guy. And it was a lot of big guys. So when I came back in 79, I'm in the dressing room and butcher me are the biggest guys in the dressing room. And then, <laughs> and, um, and, I, and then the, the, I go out to look in the arena and it's the first match. The fucking arena sold out. Oh. The arena sold out. Now, Tommy Billington had, had been there for, he'd been there. Um, his partner hadn't come to Canada yeah. yet. You know, Davy Boy. Tommy yeah. was there selling out. It was another British guy. I forget his name. I know him well because he was only. Tommy was 175 wet. Muscular, but yeah. not leaning, leaning muscular. 175. And the other guy was around about 180. Um, um, Bernie Wright. No. Marty Jones. Marty Jones. Oh, Marty Jones, and they and they were in a cage match this night, and this is the first time I seen there's this fucking dynamite kid coming, pushing, slamming the guy on the other side of the ring, and coming off the corner and smashing him on top of the cage. You know the same thing that Snooker was doing. You know when I in the seventies, late seventies, or you know in um. And he was doing that too in the mid to late seventies in Oregon, off the corner and the big splash. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, Tommy Billington, we we teamed up then, and we worked mainly with the Hart family six mans. And Brett had only started six months a year before, so um, we were we weren't just working with um, Dean and his other brother, um, the fireman. I forget his name. Um, yes. Keith, huh? no, Keith. Keith, Keith, yeah. Keith, and that because um, you know the other one has died of cancer. He was too crazy. Smith, <laughs> Smith was doing his his main life was doing ribs. He'd come on the road <laughs> and just r- plan ribs. Anyhow, um, anyhow, gets to the story. In the six man we're doing, we were the British connection, and that we were in Edmonton and Calgary. We worked with Brett, Keith, and Stu. Wow. How about that? That's you can say cool. we worked with Stu Hart. That's we worked cool. both out, and we got the sliders. How we used to go down on the knee with that punch and slide, and they used to clip you. You go right past your ear, and the elbow used to clip you on the chin. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sliders. They were notorious. They were notorious for the sliders. Yep. We work with Stu. Okay, that, well, you know that, what? That, that was something I'll always remember. Those those two matches. <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, Chief, Chief, I knew I didn't ask you too much about Canada because I didn't think it would be fair. Because I knew you grew up watching a ton of American uh, stuff. Did you have anything that you watched in Canada at all from territory stuff that you wanted to quickly mention about before we moved into America? I just didn't want to skip you over totally. Yeah, no, really. Magazines. Oh, yeah. The history books. <laughs> yeah, the history books. The after books. The after books. All right. All right. Let's take a quick down now look. And we, we've mentioned Memphis many times. So it's definitely one of the territories that was one of the hottest territories for in history of wrestling in North America. Let's talk about a bit about Memphis. And uh, let's see. Let's We'll start off. First of all, Luke, we're going to ask you 
Uh, you first going into Memphis and, and, and your thoughts about that. Well, it was 81 or 82. And, and a mate of mine was the, book, book, the booker, Bill Dundee, who I'd met in New Zealand <coughs> in the mid-60s. You know, Australian wrestlers used to come over to New Zealand and that, and um, and then we were getting a lot of too, we were getting a lot of um, WCW wrestlers. You know, um, Jim Barnett owned WCW, and that and um, that was in Australia from '65 to '73. WC World Championship Wrestling in Australia. So we get Americans there, and of course Bill Dundee came over and worked in New Zealand, and then of course when I came in there. He was the booker there, and we and they gave us a couple of guys to get over with teams to beat up, and then we did an angle. We did an angle with Jerry Jarrett's father-in-law, who was a big name wrestler in the '60s and early '70s. There, his, his father-in-law. He died two years ago. Eddie Marlin. Uh, Eddie Marlin, mate, you've got a hey. You've got an encyclopedia, mate. We, we, hey, this guy is an encyclopedia. That's he, why he's he on a walking wrestling encyclopedia. <laughs> yes. Yeah, anyhow, Eddie Marlin. And, um, you know, we did a match where he came in the ring and says, we weren't letting our opposition get in the ring. We'd be, the heels would be out first. And now as, as our opposition would come to the ring, we would jump up, jump out and beat them up and get DQ'd or just stopped. And, you know, this night, this is about the fourth weekend. We've been doing it and that. And Eddie Martin was the commissioner. And of course, being a big star in that area for so many years, and that everybody knew him. So he come in and says, you know, blah, blah, on the apron. And then it says, we've had so much shit from you. And that we're going to, this is, you know, you're fired, blah, blah. We dragged him in the ring and hit him over the head with a flagpole. And he got heavy juice. The ambulance, this is a TV station in Memphis, which is well known. It's on the main street. The ambulance come, took him out, and took him to hospital. That was all on television. And that, and um, we were fired, and that. Then Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee says, Kate got up in the mic and says, That's to, he said to the uh, to um, well, they, or something they did in the hospital. They said, Eddie Marlin, you know, that's the easier way out for them. Let them stay and we'll give them a good kick, ass kicking and get rid of them. You know what I mean? So we started with Bill Dundee and Jerry Lawler. And they're the two guys that helped us to get over. You know, we, we'd been beating up people. We had heat. But now we were the main two players in the territory. And um, that's how we went from them to the fabulous ones because they've been building the fabulous ones for six months with with the uh, who was with Jackie Fargo as their manager, yeah, and they yeah. both did the walk and all that sort of stuff. They've been Jerry Jarrett and and uh, Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler had been building them. Hence, we started with them, and that was the start of a one hell of a run. That, that's pretty cool. Okay. Uh, Let's move over to uh, Chief Atacula. Now, I know that you had been watching a lot of Memphis wrestling growing up. Uh, what things stuck in your mind right away about Memphis? Like, what made it so different or special or, or stand out? 
it was a very gimmicky territory. You know, a lot of gimmick matches. They they, they did things that other places weren't doing. And uh, <laughs> you're bloody right there, mate. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it was different than any other territory in the United States, that's for sure. Because they they came up with, I mean, they had the dress matches, the dog food matches. I mean, you can name it. They came up with. I was just going to mention. I was just going to mention the dog food match. I couldn't believe the dog food at the side of the ring, and they had to eat it. <laughs> It was, it was very. It was um, well. A lot, a lot of the territories were more violent back then. A little, a little more bloody, but yeah, Memphis was definitely utilized uh, juice a lot. And uh, of course, another territory I want to talk about with with Luke was uh, uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling. Yeah, we'll get there next. That that was hardcore before anyone before anyone else was hardcore for sure. Okay. Would, you, would okay. you say, Chief, would you say that Memphis was kind of uh, ahead of its time, though, as far as the use of gimmicks, kind of like in that, res- in that regard? Or even stories, because they also had yeah. a lot of crazy stories. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. They, were, they were ahead of, sorry about cutting in, but okay. they were the first ones to do videos. You know, they, Jerry Lawler and Jerry Jarrett, well, I hear, were doing videos from 1980, uh, you know, behind... Music videos with yeah. wrestlers. Like the promo yeah, videos. They bring somebody yeah. into the territory, like the fabulous ones. They had these yes. great video packages for two months before they bring somebody in. By the time you got to the territory, you're already over. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, that's that. That is, you know, it's a hard to talk about this, but this is the stuff that are not hard to talk about. But I mean, it's very fascinating to talk about this because you see the big things that happen in today's big territories, and these things, some of these people these small areas don't get the credit for being the genesis of a lot of these things because uh, it would be hard not to say that some of the bigger companies stole these ideas and incorporated it and tried to make it seem like they were the first to do these things. Well, and, and uh, sorry, I, real quick, cause I just want to touch on it because mm-hmm. as far as Memphis goes, but I mean, you know, and, and you know, I love talking about this angle cause I've talked about it on, on a lot of our shows, but the Andy Kaufman, Jerry Lawler thing, you know, I mean, you know, it sounded like I think it was Vince Senior that turned it down, and Memphis picked it up, and that was probably, and that was like 1982, I believe. 81. I was, I was there. Yeah, yeah. That was the first, night. really national wrestling angle. Probably. Yeah, yeah. And, and for and for Lawler to jump on that and take advantage of that, like you said, like the national exposure for that was just unreal. I think that really helped Memphis. I mean, you know, I, I touched on earlier about the the overall drawing power of Memphis compared to New York. But I think for that year, like 1981, like 81, 82, I think that just like blew them out of the water. Mm-hmm. You know, back then, they, they, were running, they were basically booking everything out of Hendersonville, the suburb of Nashville out of Jerry yes. Jarrett. Okay. Luke, go ahead. You were going to say. I was there for that angle, mate. I was yeah. on the, I was in the territory there too. Andy Kaufman was a very laid back, quiet guy would sit in the dressing room as quiet as anything, not say a word. But I was there when they did the, the thing with the fire with Jimmy Hart, you know, and mm-hmm. that they had um, Andy Kaufman was supposed to be, you know, he got burnt and uh, the other way around and that, and they switched the masks and that, and he jumped Jerry Laura from behind and then got the second run out of it too. They They were thinking... Hey, their angles were ahead at the time, mate. You know, they created Absolutely. Huh? They created they created Kamala, they created the Blues Brothers, 
They had the Blues Brothers, two black guys. They created a lot of teams that had music with them and um, were great were great attractions, not only in Memphis, but in the Mid-South area. Bill Watts, UWF. These, yeah. They would go switch town, and that was that was one of the biggest territories in the South. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for for those, and I just because Luke, just because you know he's one he's one of our favorite people, and we talk about Jerry Jarrett, we talk about Jerry Lawler, uh, Eddie Marlin. Uh, you know, when you talk about uh, Kamala, you talk about the Blue Brothers, some of those guys. I think we would be remiss to at least not acknowledge the contribution of our friend uh, El Sucio, Mister Dirty Dutch Mantel, for his contributions oh. uh, to Memphis mm-hmm. and wrestling yes. in general. Very yes, much. Very that was the big. Okay, so I got to. Okay, so Andy, we know he he's always been about the Jerry uh, Lawler, Andy Kaufman thing. Uh, when it, when it comes to big angles out of Memphis, uh, Vance, Nevada, what was the one angle for you that caught your imagination the most? You know what? I, I really didn't get tuned into Memphis probably until I was you know in the wrestling business. Okay. Uh, you know, and then, you know, by that time, like we're, you know, early nineties, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mem- Memphis wasn't really my territory. I mean, I, I grew up in Manitoba, right? So AWA yeah. was, was, was your territory. Yeah. That. yeah. But, but you AWA, were, you were still but, a collector. You were still a collector of the history books. Yeah. You so surely it. you had to have something out of uh, all the magazines from, from Memphis that, uh, that hooked you. You know what? I think my, my favorite, my favorite angle, and I was just actually ribbing um, gorgeous Michelle Starr about this the other day, uh, was uh, Eddie Gilbert, Jerry Lawler, where uh, Eddie Gilbert ran over Jerry Lawler with his car in a parking lot yes. of the WMC TV studio. Okay. All right. How about you, Chief? What was your favorite hands-down uh, thing out of Memphis that came? What was your big storyline that, that got you? Um, I, I actually like the one, I, I like the storyline too, where, where, uh, Eddie Gilbert ran down Jerry Lawler. And then of course the, the, the decades long feud, um, that he had with Bill Dundee too, you know, they had, okay. that, they had that no ropes matches and I, I mean, they, they did everything under the sun. You know, right. And wasn't it, wasn't it Memphis with, uh, Lawler and Terry Funk? Weren't they one of the first ones to do the, uh, the no empty, fan, arena. Like the empty, empty arena match? Yeah. 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 And also yeah, the consent- you've probably seen the famous promo that uh, that Terry Funk did where he dumped the uh, quart of oil. He was he shot in the locker room in the shower and he dumped the quart of motor oil over his head. Have you seen that? Yes, I yeah. have. Yeah, I can say it's out there on YouTube if you haven't seen it. But uh, yeah, they did a lot of crazy things down there. Yeah, here's okay. another big star yeah. there too. Austin Idol had Austin a hell of a run. Yes, very with Lawler. Austin Idol had a big big run too with Lawler. But oh yeah, they were. Cook- they they feuded. They were tag team partners. They feuded yes. again. Went on forever. They switched back and forth. But my my biggest thing there was, you know, I can't remember what we did. We did a lot of shit there, you know, every week. But the biggest thing that I saw was the Andy Kaufman thing because that yeah. went nationwide. And yeah. of course, that um, the other talk show host came down there. He's retired now. He used to wear glasses. Yeah, yeah, David Letterman. David Letterman, and yeah. he was there, and of course they were trying to say the blood was fake. He actually scraped some blood off the mat and had it tested. You know that? Yeah. Wow. Wow. It was on on his television. It was on his show. Yeah. Yeah, on on his show that he That's... scraped some blood off the mat. Now, 
Okay, before we go any further, I have to give you guys all a moment of lunacy here because I just got texted while we're doing this live uh, from Rick Serrano III. And, and Luke, you do not have to answer this. And please, actually, please don't answer this. But he just sent me a text saying, please ask Luke about the natural disasters. So <laughs> the answer is, <laughs> it's an ongoing joke that this guy loves <laughs> the natural disasters. He wants to know anything about <laughs> Who was that again? The host of WPOV Wrestling, who sometimes joins us, of our sister show. Mm-hmm. He, uh, yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> <laughs> The third, Rick Serrano, the third. Oh, three of them to forget. No, uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he actually listed the natural disasters as the number one tag team. <laughs> the things. Sorry, I just had to throw it. Nobody has to talk about the natural disasters. Oh, that was the Madison Square Garden with Andre the Giant in that corner. That was the last time that Andre worked for WWF, you know, in, in I think it was 93 against the National Guarders in, M- in Madison Square Garden. Against the natural disasters. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, it was a natural dis- and it was a natural disaster for the Bushwhackers. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, Chief, you brought up a territory. Tell me, yeah. tell us the territory again and why it's important to you. Joe Blanchard's uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling out of San Antonio, which which gets overlooked a lot, I think, in wrestling history. It but does. for years that a huge run, they were originally the ones on the USA Network on Sunday mornings uh, before WWF took the time slot. But um, I know um, uh, Luke had a very Butch and Luke had a very the Sheepers were a very violent team, were a prominent team down in that area. Bruiser Brody, Joe LeDuc was down there. Abdullah was in and out. Uh, Killer Brooks. Um, of course, Tolly Blanchard, Gino Hernandez, and Bruiser Bob Sweetan, Bobby Jaggers. It was a great territory. And, uh, of course, um, probably the forgotten member of their team um, was Warlord Jonathan Boyd, who actually got killed in a car accident, I think, when he was in that territory. But he was a very prominent okay. uh, person down, down in Southwest Championship Wrestling at one point. And Luke probably has some good memories from the Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio, I'm guessing. The Hemisphere Arena in San Antonio. A lot yep. of stories. That was um, I, 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 a lot of stories there, mate. My initiation to the territory. I was driving over the city, coming into Montreal, into San Antonio. There's flyovers. One here, one above it, one above it. They're stacked about four high. And I, was, I don't know where I was in, the, about the third one up. And I was coming home from a town. And I had it at Lincoln Continental. You know the monogram on the on the hood at the front, like an H, the monogram. Next minute mm-hmm. I hear a bang. And then and the monogram on the car goes like that. I literally went over to the fucking wall, hit the wall on that. Fucking um one of the guys now in the territory had a had a laser uh, laser light on his gun. And it got my thing, shot at my uh, Lincoln thing, just as a joke. And that uh, Sweethead, Bob Sweethead. I was going to say it sounds like a Bob Sweethead story. <laughs> yeah, and that was that. Anyhow, after after about six weeks there, they gave me the book, you know, as a booker there. So that was the first time I ever had the book in in the territory. I've been in territories and I've been the suggesting finishes a lot, you know. When I was in Stu's territory in the 70s, and when I was back in New Zealand, 
I always put, we always put the finishes together, you know, in the matches and that. We did our own finishes and that. But um, here I am now doing the television and booking talents. And of course, Bruiser lived about, Bruiser Brody lived about 30 miles out. And of course, his wife's a Kiwi from the same country as me, New Zealand. And um, so I, I, I got to know Bruiser very well, you know. And um, Abdullah, I'd known since, you know, Calgary, before Calgary, he was in New Zealand too, in the, um, in the late 60s. So I'd known Abdullah and that. So my main two guys bringing in to shoot angles, I bring um, Abdullah in to get him hot. Brody was already over in the territory. And, but I used to bring um, Abdullah in from Atlanta for the TV on a Monday night, get it hot, and then bring him back for the Hemisphere the weekend. You know, we do Saturday, Saturday we would do Austin, Saturday night. Sunday afternoon, we'd do down the valley on the border. Um, there's quite a few towns on the border there, mate, isn't there? Yep. The border, yeah, the Mexican um, border. West Laco, McMullen, or something or other where Tito Santana's from. And all along there, we'd do that in the afternoon and then be in San Antonio, small plane, and we'd be back in San Antonio hemisphere for um, Sunday night. Mm -hmm. yeah, and then yeah. they do some big shows a few times a year in the Houston Summit, too, I know. Yes, in the Houston Summit. Well, that was poor Bosch, but he was bringing, he was bringing the San Antonio guys to do the... Um, I wasn't there then. That's when Tully was um, Tully was sort of the book and that I think, and um, he had his partner who's dead. You know, you know Hernandez. Yeah, what a, what a worker he was, mate. Yeah. Incredible worker. That was an incredible team. Now, now th this this territory, of course, was marked with uh, super violent matches. Uh, why, why did that work more so there than other places around, say, in the U.S., do you guys think? I was very fit for there. Yeah, I Texas and Arizona, um, you know, I, I, I broke in early in, in, in Arizona, and, and, and they sell the remnants of that. The whole southwest area was kind of a – they liked violent, bloody matches just in that region of the United States. Okay. It was ECW before ECW, uh, Southwest Championship Wrestling, that was. Yeah, that, that's a fair thing to say. They, hey, mate, the Latins love blood and guts. I worked in South America a lot. Yeah, I worked in Central America, and I worked in South America, you know, and I worked in and I worked in uh, San Antonio, and uh, Florida was blood and guts too because they had a lot of Latins there because Puerto coming Rico. out from Puerto Rico, and yeah. that. I, of course, I booked in Puerto Rico. We can get to that later. But um, <laughs> the blood and guts, it was it was blood and guts, you know, really blood and guts. You, you, you were know, that, I did a lot of different matches there, you know, barbed wire matches, uh, glove on the pole matches, all, ki all kinds of matches. You know, I can't think of the names now, but yeah. we invented matches. You just, when we were doing blow-offs, we'd invent matches, then we'd invent another match to go on top again. And they're all bloody. Okay. Luke, you were, you were in San Antonio, weren't you, when, when they brought a very young chicky star in? 
Chicky, I bought Chicky Star over there because I'd yeah. been in Puerto Rico earlier. I'd, I'd been in Puerto Rico in 1980, and um, and I bought Chicky and I, and I bought Carlison too to work with Abdullah sometimes in the shows. I ran footage from from Puerto Rico with Carlos there. And the plus, I did the biggest. We did the biggest angle for Puerto Rico when. Um, when Carlos got his neck broken by Hanson and Brody, we set that whole angle up in in in, in Texas, in San, in San Antonio. Wow. Okay. Well, you know what? I, it, it, the guys, you know what? You guys bring up Chicky Star, and I know we're doing a Puerto Rico episode in a couple of weeks. I say we got to get Chicky Star on there now. I, I just that. we got to get that guy. Like I've always wanted to hear from Chicky Star, so that's something we'll get. But okay, let's move on. He was a green mate. He was a green little boy that didn't say boo when I had him in fucking um, Texas. Yeah, they teamed him up with Bruiser Bob Sweetan. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I, I had, I had him. I had the whole uh, Latin connection there for a while for shows. I had Carlos, Al Perez, Manny Fernandez, and Chicky Star. There's a whole carload of um, Latins. Okay. Yeah, you know, an angle that I really remember standing out from down there. Um, uh, so, some people might might re, uh, remember um, Hangman Bobby Jaggers. Yes, he, he he was he was always a heel everywhere. He was up in the Central States, up here in my area, and then of course he was down in Texas. You'd never think this guy could become a babyface, but the sheep herders turned him babyface in, in the same. <laughs> now I can tell you the angle when we still had USA Network. The angle, mm. the angle with the horse with Scott Casey and the bucket full of piss and shit. Yeah, you, I remember, remember that. Scott Casey was another great worker that was that's kind of forgotten now or very overlooked. Scott Casey. What that's a good baby face he was. And he, he he had horses too. Cowboy Scott Casey. And of course, Bobby Bobby was very loose with the truth. He was a Kansas cowboy and he could talk on that fucking mic. As a heel, he he was like a Dusty Rose. He didn't have that twang like uh, the South, like Dusty had. But uh, Bobby could talk, and we did this angle that um, for a horse, whoever won the match got a horse from the other guy. Now we did this. We did this uh, where we shot the television was a junction, and we had a bucket. Now behind behind this angle was Terry Funk. This bucket had had horse shit in it. But they got horse shit, but all the boys in the back had pissed in it and a couple of boys had shit in it. And they mixed it all up. The bucket bucket (laughs) sat on the stage, on the stage. And now Terry told, Terry's on the phone telling Bobby, when the angle blows off, you slap, you slap fucking... um, Scott, push him and that, and then blah blah, and you get on get on the mic and say what you're gonna do. Scott comes back, picks up that bucket and jams on your head. Now when you jam it on your head, don't fucking push it off straight away. Let the people think that it's got a vacuum and it's stuck there. So wobble it around on your head. Jeez. Now this is on this is on USA Network. Oh, oh, they must have loved that. That was, one, that was one angle I'll always remember. I hadn't taken the book yet, but that was uh, that was that was um, Tully 
getting it all off Terry Funk. Terry Funk was a great guy for the finishers. <laughs> yeah, because he hey, all Dory's all Dory's best finishers came from Terry. Wow. Oops. Sorry. I've lost, you. I've lost you guys. Oh, here we go. There we go. Yeah. So, okay. So, you know, we've been going lots. And we're going to go a few more territories. Obviously, there are probably way more territories than we have to cover the time. So since we have Luke and since we have Chief here, we are definitely going to cover a few of the things that they're more familiar with. And if we have to revisit down the road, folks, and do some of the other territories, we will. Sure. And we'll find people who are in those territories. But uh, let's talk about, let's move a quick little lateral move down to Puerto Rico. We have a big Puerto Rican thing coming up, but we're going to get uh, Bushwhacker Luke's uh, look at Puerto Rico from his vantage point. So talk a bit, Luke, about okay, going into Puerto Rico. Tell you, we, we were in NWA and that working for Crockett, and they put the pacifier belts on us. Not the world belts, the pacifier, the, the mid-Atlantic. And that territory, <laughs> the mid-Atlantic belt was called the pacifiers. Yeah. And that, but you'd work, you'd work semi-main and you'd be in the group of three or four matches in the big events. But in the smaller towns they ran, you'd be, you know, there'd be a single match and a tag match on top. So, and we were doing 3,500 miles a week in the car. Got the call from Puerto Rico from from Frenchie Martin, who we had, who had been in New Zealand numerous times when I was working in New Zealand. And then he says, you can make up to 2,000 a week working three days a week. We gave our notice. We gave Crockett, we gave Crockett six weeks notice and that. And we didn't know at the time you didn't give Jim Crockett the notice. He gave you notice. You know, he wasn't used, you know, because it was a, a territory that everyone wanted to be in. It was the biggest territory in North America at, at the time, you know, the NWA out of Charlotte. It was hot. So anyway, we go to Puerto Rico. The first night, Carlos, I sat in the office with Carlos, and that this is 1980. 1981 or 1980, sat an office with him, planned it out. He was going to be in the foyer at 7.30 or 8 o'clock signing photos. You know, he never does it. But now and again, it was a, an order, a free autograph session with Carlos Colon in, in the lobby going into the arena. And it was in Carguas, indoor, not outdoor, which hold about, at that time, it held about 6,000 people, 5,000 people. Anyhow, um, no one knows this and that. So Carlos is signing, and he says, you guys come through the front door, split your fag pole, and beat me up. You know? So um, we come through the front door. All the people are packed around the table. There's a line of people. No one knew who we were. We had our bags with a, a, a guy with us too who was helping us with our bags come in. We split the flagpole and we beat him to pulp. There was blood all over the table, all over the photos, blood squirting on the wall, everything. This is Puerto Rico, mate. Awesome. Carlos, you saw Carlos's head, you know what it yeah. was like. And that there was blood all over the place. So we left it. That night, we were booked against Carlos and the invader. The top two baby faces 
in Puerto Rico and in the Caribbean, right? So um, come to the match time, the last match of the night, and that uh, invader comes out, and, and um, you know they, the referee says your opponent's not here tonight, uh, but there's numerous guys in the dressing room. You can um, call him, and he says, "No, this is a this is something I have to take care of myself for Carlos and my something I have to take care of for Carlos and myself." So we started the match with the invader, and um, well, you know, it, we we um, put him over at the start. He outshined us. We cut him off. He came out of top. We cut him off. He came out of top. And then we buried him and start getting heat on him. And he would call over. He would put his foot up and stop one of us. And then call over to the corner like it was a tag match. And he'd come to his senses and realize and try and fight back. And then we'd both come in like bulls on him again. And that, anyhow, we grounded him down in the end. He wore a white mask. And then, of course, he hit, it, hit the forehead and there was blood coming through the mask. You know, the mask would get all bloody and go red. And then, and, and we're beating him up and getting more blood. And all of a sudden, an ambulance come into the fucking building and <laughs> out of the drive, out of the fucking passenger seat, Carlos Cologne come out with a bat. And um, what's the movie? Walking Tall? Yeah. You yeah. know, when Buford yeah. Prosser comes to town and yeah. cleans house. Well, he came in that ring with that thing, started swinging. He caught a couple of shots, and we got out of dodge. And that, <laughs> so we st still kept the heat. And the, but the people fucking went unglued. We, we they got about fifteen minutes, you know. But the aftermath was another aftermath. Staying in the arena, you know, and they fans cut us off about getting back to the dressing room. So we were stuck between the ring, outside of the ring, and the dressing room. And we had to wait for security to get, get together. They were worried because when the crowd wired there, they, they rioted. Andy will tell you. Yeah. They rioted, it's, mate. And it's safe, it's, it's a real quick, mate, real quick. It's just safe to say I don't think there's any crowd that compares to a Puerto Rico crowd, especially like back in the 80s. Wow. Is that, yeah, is that, is that fair I, to say, Luke? Like, I don't think anybody was as rabid, as wild. Nowhere. Only the most, most dangerous crowds. Yes. Probably, right, Luke? <laughs> these, these guys had shields, like in the Roman days. You know, they <laughs> throw spears, and they had, had big shields on their wrist and arm, body shields. Well, these, like guys, had purse, these guys had perspect purse body shields. This is how it was in 1980, 81. You know, they weren't body length. They were about from your knees up above their head. First big shield. And it was rounded, strapped on their arm, and they had a baton in their other hand. Sheesh. That shows how it was. And these Puerto Ricans, and these Puerto Ricans, God bless them, they were all baseball pitchers. <laughs> they could, they could, they could pitch from up in the stands over a net, and the thing would land in the ring. Now, outside the arenas at the shows, guys would be selling bags of limes. You know, you know what a lime is? Yeah, like a lemon, but it's yeah. about that size—a <laughs> small lemon, 
about that about that size, and yes. that, and they were hard as rock, and they would sell them bags of them, big bags of them, because these what they used to throw at the wrestlers. <laughs> you know, the people outside the ring. And another thing too, the paper cups. They were getting the paper cups with ice, squeeze them around the top and use those. You know, and that was that was like rocks hitting you too. Well, I, I can't imagine something great as having a nice big now they, forehead they, and, and a line. And then they had a period of time they were throwing spark plugs. I guess the guys oh. outside were, were selling spark plugs because spark <laughs> plugs... Would be the ring would be full of spark plugs. You know what Jeez. I mean? And I, I guess batteries too was a famous thing too, right? Was it not? Just whipping batteries at each other. Yeah. I just remember talking about the violence and that back in your country, back in there, PEI. We did an angle with Don Leo and um, and Emil Dupree there, and everyone was drinking bottles of beer in the arena. Next minute. Beer bottles were smashing against the ring posts coming in there. That was wild. All those potato pickers, or the potato pickers, they call them. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that night because butcher me, the, the beer bottles were coming. We we're having to put our arm up over our eyes. We were getting hit in the head with beer bottles. They're coming from all directions. Jeez. <laughs> Mar the Maritimes was still hot, and we we were the last time I worked the Maritimes was 2009, and we did a we did a gimmick in the main event, and the people were so hot, the heels were barricaded uh, in the dressing room, and people were just pounding on the door like they were not leaving, and police were called, and the people were still there pounding on the door, and what wow. they had done to get us out of the building was they snuck us out a back door of the dr the dressing room and into the back of the ring truck. So we were laying on the ring, like under the tarp to get, <laughs> to get out of the building. Uh, and the people were all still there waiting for us to come out. That's and awesome. uh, what, what was like really spectacular about it is that, uh, you know, we got about three blocks away from the arena. Of course, like we had like dove in the ring truck. We don't even have the, the back door of the ring truck closed. It's just like, just get out of here uh, so that we don't die. And about three weeks, three blocks down the road, we got pulled over by the police for this unsecured load. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, the, one of my uh, travel mates was suddenly very paranoid because maybe he had imbibed on some things that he wasn't supposed to and was worried oh. about. <laughs> so the, the police came, they opened up the back, we explained the situation, they were like, carry on. Uh, <laughs> and just another night in the Maritimes. Now, yeah, I was up. I, I spent from 2.10 um, to, to 2.13 booking for Chuck Martin up there. Once, a, once every month in the, in the winter, I'd do a week. We'd do a week once a month from, from um, May or April, May, right through to September, October, till they put the ice down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's, still, he's still running up there. He's, now, he's, he's, he's out of Halifax. Okay. Now, now this, that story would have been so much awesome if once they were throwing potatoes. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Just a yeah, whole yeah. thing of potatoes, yeah. that would have been awesome. That uh, I'm sure there's enough, sure the enough potatoes in the ring already. Oh! Yeah, back, back to Puerto Rico. That was yes. our first night in Puerto Rico, mate. And that, you know, trying to get back to the dressing room. That was wild. And anyhow, now funny story then. One of the main stars of Puerto Rico from the uh, uh, 
from uh, what era? From the 2000, the 90s. When I was here in 81 or 80, he was security. Savio Vega. Who became, you know, he worked two gimmicks. He worked as Savio Vega and what was the other gimmick? um, TNT. TNT. Yeah, I talked to him. I still talk to him about twice uh, every week. Anyhow, um, he worked at that gimmick there. He was security at the time too. His uncle ran the security company. And then in 83, I came back and he was doing, or 84, I came back and was a booker for um, Carlos then. And um, he was the, um, he was actually working then, you know, in a mask. He was working in a mask, um, but not as TNT then, just working a mask. Because I sent him to um, Blue Watchers Territory then, mm-hmm. and then he went out to Blue Watchers Territory yeah. to work for a while, and then he came back. And, um, oh. of course, TNT was made, and, you know, he, then he was owner of a company. Of course, Andy knows that. But we, that's, that's getting way down the road. We're in the, <laughs> we're in the 80s. We're in the 80s now, how bad it was there. And it was really bad. When I come back in 83, I got sliced many. I was in court, sliced in my arm. I've been sliced a couple of times there. The fans used to put razor blades between their hands and that, like that, see a fan hand, the blade would be there. And they'd slap you and draw and pull it down and it would slice you. Yeah. Yeah, you, You want to know what they do over there now, Luke? The last uh, ten years, I've I've been working over there. Now they now their big thing is to piss in their piss in cups, and then they throw the cups of piss at. Yeah, yeah they used to piss. Remember the old uh, cargo station room, and that before they redid the did the Coliseum up. This was in the eighties. They used to piss through the wall, and that uh, you were downstairs, but there was cracks in that. They'd, and a screen, they would piss through the screen, and the piss would come down on the walls in the dressing room. <laughs> and, then, and and you'd hear and you'd hear I fucked your mother I fucked your mother. <laughs> wow, oh, God bless Puerto Rico. Yeah, <laughs> but a lot of a lot of stories of Puerto Rico. We used to go in a van, and the guy that drove the drove the van, he had a couple of screwdrivers in the back, grinded right to a sharp points, and he had rocks in the back of the van too. In the back of the van, we all used to drive. All the hills used to drive. The windows were were were, right, were darkened and that. But we all used to drive to the towns there. And that getting out of the arena some nights, he would he, he would be out. He could throw rocks and hit a guy a well a long way away. The driver, he was a <laughs> he was safe. He took care of the hills, but we had to pay him to drive the loop every every Sunday. Holy smokes! <laughs> Saturday and Sunday, he would take us from the hotel. Saturday, we'd do one of the we'd do Bayamon, uh, Cargus, or, or Humaca. We'd do one of the yeah. one of the main towns around there, mainly mainly uh, Bayamon or Cargus or Central San Juan, and that he would drive us to the towns because these days on a Saturday night, a normal Saturday night. You get you draw eight thousand people every Saturday night. This is this is in the eighties with no big card, just the local guys. 
you know, with the television, we had angles. And then we went into the ballpark for the big shows. It was in the 20s, up to 25,000, you know, in the ballparks. Because the, the ballparks are about 19 to 20, and they put 4,000 seats out on the grass. Wow. It was crazy. Yeah. 2,000 people on the grass. It was crazy. You know, to get to that fucking, come out of that dugout, you had to run to the ring. The ring would be inside the, the first base. And you'd have to run for it and, that, and look, look over your back while you're running and that to get in the ring because once you're in the ring, you could, you could see stuff coming over the net because there's always nets around the front of the stand. But when you come out of the dugout, dugout you, they could lob stuff over and get you before you go up to the ring and that. And only in the big shows and that when they had the big crowds were the ground seated. And and one show we we did we did a crucifix of um this is going right back after WWE. But we done a lot of hot angles and that and this night we done a crucifix. On a cage match, we uh, at the end of the cage match, we crucified Invader One up on the side of the ring. So he was on the apron, but onto the, onto the cage. The cage was on the apron, and he was there, and we I tied him up there with, with barbed wire. I had gloves and barbed wire, thin barbed wire, and fitted around his arms, both arms, around his legs, so he's on the side of the cage like a crucifix, and that. And, and we drew, and we came back and drew one hell of a house, and that night, getting out of that ring, it was an hour and a half between the end of our match and the next match. That's how how they had to wait to get the crowd to, to quiet quiet down. It was fucking wild that night. Wild. Now, you know, this, these, these matches started late. The fans were coming at 7, 7.30. The show would start to 9. So they'd be yep. drinking hard liquor, yeah. <laughs> hard liquor, and they'd be drinking hard liquor and beer right through the show. So coming to the end of the sh end of the night, that's why a lot of the main events were before intermission. Because by the end of the night, uh, it was if you didn't work before intermission or after intermission, and get out before the crowd got out, you'd be dead. You'd be dead meat. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. there's a thing. There's a thing over there known as Puerto Rico time. The guys Puerto have been over. <laughs> I remember the very first time I was over there for a show, and the, and the show was supposed to start at, at seven thirty, and I and I, and I was at the courts where we were having it, and I, I was uh, trying to find the promoter, and they're like, "Well, he's not here yet," and it was like seven twenty-five. I'm like, and there's no no people there yet, and I'm like, "Well, I, I thought they were advertising this for seven thirty, right?" <laughs> and they're like, "The promoter will be here about eight o'clock, right?" He shows up at eight. The show starts at nine. The place is packed, but yeah. they advertise stuff for seven thirty. That's like some companies or, I know in Canada. Hey mate, intermission they sold liquor, so the intermission would go on. They that let the intermission go on and on till, oh. like, till people stopped buying it. You know, till there was only one line of people across the bar, yeah. but it'd be packed, packed back. You know, ten people stacked back right across the bar. Ten people, ten people, and they would stay serving. I've gone to the ring there twelve thirty, quarter to yeah. one, many times. It's like it's been like a forty-five minute, hour-long intermission, 
for a show that would, oh. you know, like, I mean, she was 7.30. I know a lot of our shows were like 8 o'clock, 8.30, yeah. you know, bell time. And they yeah. would start to like 9 o'clock, 9.15. Yeah, it's more like that. I was just using 7.30. Just yeah. As a yeah. Time. <laughs> and that's, and that, and that's one of the things. Like, yeah, because yeah, a lot of times, well, like, um, yeah, when, 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 when I was working, when I was working Savio over there and we were doing the main event, yeah, we were going on by 12.30, yeah. you know, 1 o'clock in the morning. Oh, <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, what time do the cards end? What time do they usually end? Whenever. Yeah, whenever. <laughs> whenever. I mean, what was an average though? I mean, were they going like one in the morning? Like anything yeah. from like twelve to one? Yeah. Yep. Wow. Twelve to one's about the especially, about, the, especially the weekend. Most shows end. Yeah. Yeah, the Friday Saturday shows in this. That was yep. one of the things is that you'd have to tell all the guys coming in that were that weren't like native to Puerto Rico. Said, look, this is Puerto Rico time. This is how it works. Yep. Yeah. Don't get mad. Don't get upset. Just, you know, just accept it. This is like a, an island of like two to three million people to one. So you're yeah. not going to win. Just yeah. acknowledge that if, you know, the show says 830 start time, maybe 915 will get going. <laughs> Doesn't make any, hey, Technically, don't, they're on Eastern time, but they're really on Puerto Rican time. Yeah. Right. Mate, don't make any arrangements for us to the match. Exactly. You can never keep it. You can never keep it. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. So this is the question I have for three guys here for sure have been to Puerto Rican wrestling and been there and been a part of it. If it's this crazy, if there's this much almost possible violence against you, what make motivates you to actually want to do this? Is it what is it excitement? Is it an adrenaline rush? Yeah. Yeah, you got you got people that are still that passionate about it and, and you don't find that as much in the States anymore. I mean there's pocket. But people down there are still very passionate about it, and that, that's what that's what you live. And that the, pa- okay. the passion, the buy-in, and, and I don't want to say it's easy for the sa- for the sake of making it. Oh yeah, like it's, it's easy work, but it, it is one of those things where when there's when that passion's there, when that believability is there, when that buy-in is there. I mean, any you know, like Chief will tell you, Luke will tell you, Vance will tell you. I mean. Uh, everybody loves to work in front of a even if it's a crowd of like 50 versus a crowd of 500 if the crowd of 500 is going to be silent but the crowd of 50 is going to rock the place chances are you're going to want to work in front of the crowd of 50 just because they're going to react and that you know that connection is going to be there and that and that's how puerto rico would be every night you know you the the hot angles like man like things were on fire like luke says you know it's an hour and a half from when the match is over to the next match gets started who in their right mind as a professional wrestler wouldn't want to be a part of that? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. Even if there's piss and razor oh. blades and batteries. You know what? And... I mean, we, we, you know, cause we're talking territories. We're not, you know, kind yeah. of just yeah. general like North America. But, but even, I mean, you know, like to work in Mexico, like mm-hmm. for me, you know, for my time there, that was one of the things as, as, a, as a green heel. We used to, when we used to fight out into the crowd, to me, it was like, how many beers were I getting thrown on me? Yeah. Did did, did you work the uh, border towns down there, Andy? Absolutely. Yeah. Reynosa, Nuevo Laredo, yeah. all those all along yeah. there. Yep. And, and the that first was area it. I worked in 86 was out in Arizona, and then I got booked in those border towns. I, I, I used to work those in the late 80s and early 90s, but those could be dangerous, too. <laughs> yeah, and you work in the Plaza del Toros, and it's like some of the little bullfighting arenas and whatnot. And, and that's just like... You know, like you guys can say, okay, well, I'm doing this for the money or whatever. But when you're getting that reaction, when you're getting that heat as a heel, when you're getting that love as a baby face, that that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
Puerto Rico, when you talk about Puerto Rico being a hotbed, like I can listen to Luke tell stories all day. And I mean, and I can just envision it. And I just like would love to be a part uh, of that heat. Like, okay. Yeah. Your life's in danger at times. Sure. <laughs> but, but man, like that, that's, you know, when you're working towards getting that reaction, that's gonna be one of the greatest things in the world. Hey, okay. ambulance matches. It's unbelievable. You know, the ambulance is ringside and that, the tags here in tanks, it's easier in a single match in tanks. You've got to knock the two guys down and then knock them down semi-conscious, put them in the ambulance. Once you're in the ambulance, you've got to drive to the gate. The ambulance drive drives about five miles, eight miles an hour. We'll be driving across to the park, especially at Baymont, uh, outside to the, the to the gate on the other side of the arena, the fans have jumped out of the stands and run across and opened the back of the ambulance and, and came in on us, and that and we've had to lean back against the wall and put our boot to them till 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 um, the invaders or Carlos and the baby faces have come and pushed the fans aside and said we'll take care of it, and then we've fought back <laughs> out of the fought back out of the back of the ambulance. And fought back to the ring and started all over again. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, wow. One other Crazy. thing. One other, one other thing I want to mention about Puerto Rico wrestling and Chief and and Luke. I know you guys will back me up on this. I can't think of another territory. I mean, nowadays, you know, when, when we had not during the pandemic, but when we had crowds in the matches, you know, and, and the people who get behind it, you get like the "This is awesome" chant, and you get a Ric Flair. You know, somebody chops somebody, you get the "Woo," but in Puerto Rico, North, like, especially when things were, were hot, it didn't have to be a comeback. It could be early on when, or when things are hot and the baby face is, is getting on the heels. And that crowd, doesn't matter how big, how small it was, you know, the baby face would be giving it to the heel and you'd get that, wah, wah, wah. Nothing like that anywhere. I, I dare you to tell me anywhere else that was like that for like the past 20, 30, 35 years or whatever. Yeah. Nowhere. Wow. Carlos, Carlos and, uh, and Jovica opened up in 75, you know, with Grilla Monsoon and that. And it's been like that since, you know what I mean? Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And, and in, in Arena Mexico, it's the same. You know, in Arena Mexico? Yeah. The yeah. big one with the hole in the roof, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah there. In Mexico City. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah Mexico City. Arena Mexico, you know? There is blood too. Everybody bleeds there. It's unreal. You know, when I was there, you know, there was Babyface, Mil Mascaris, Doscaris, the Vianos, the Viano brothers. There was another two, another two brothers too that came to WCW. I can't remember their names. And that, but is that like with Silver King and? um, No, but uh, it was the brothers. Yeah. One of them had their chins out, and they kick their. They threw you. You threw them against the corner post, and they kick their chins. They had an open chin mask. Was not Silver King, and who, I'm trying to think of his brother, El Tejano. Was it Tejano and Silver King? Doctor yeah. Wagner Jr. is is uh, Silver King's brother. Okay, no, I got it mixed up then. Okay, I apologize. Yeah, and the other and the other ones too. Their shoulders were all slashed. You throw them against the ring post, and they. Slash their shoulders, the scars up and down their shoulders. You know, Puerto Rico, right there. Yeah. Hey, Chief, where are you yeah. living at the moment? 
I, li- I live in Iowa. In Iowa? Yep. Flyover where, country. <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you living down? Uh, um, uh, not Birmingham, somewhere down south before? No, I, I worked down there. I was working down there a lot, but I, I've always lived in Iowa. Uh, Iowa, okay. Okay. Well, you know what, guys? Obviously, uh, there are so many other territories we haven't even touched. Big name territories. We didn't even really talk about Florida or Portland or Georgia or all kinds of places. There's so many more. I think we're probably going to have to down the road revisit another territories thing and, and try and talk about the other ones we missed. But these are some great examples. And, and I think one of the things that's pretty evident in here is that it was a whole different world of wrestling to what the kind of wrestling is today. Yeah, um, and I'm, and I don't even mean just in the style, but everything from the the way stories were told, the way people reacted, the way the way things happened was a whole different world. Now we're going to finish up here, but I just have a few little questions that I wanted to ask Luke since we got him here. Little questions, that I, and if anyone wants to throw in a question, we'll, I'm not we'll, going to, mate. I'm not yeah. going to answer them. You're going to answer them. You want to answer them? I know you You're want to gonna, talk about I'm this. I'm not going to answer them. The, well, the, how about this one question? Back in the day of the sheep herders, there was a guy that used to run around with a flagpole all the time for you, a kind of blonde guy with long hair. Would you say his name was Elio? Jack Victory. Jack Victory. Whatever happened to Jack Victory? Because I don't recall anything that's ever happened to him since he was with you guys. No, after that, he he and the, our other flag bearer, who was Butch's nephew, Butch was his uncle, was Rip Morgan. Okay. They, teamed, they teamed up. And we're in WCW with Lord Littlebrook. Okay. They were a tag team. Now, I don't know the name of their tag team. They were royal, something royal, and because Littlebrook was their manager. Okay. Any, anyone and else was, know the name? And this was, yeah. this was 1990, around okay. 1990, WCW. Well, they, they started them uh, in camo uh, as uh, the New Zealand militia. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and then they brought them out in the regal robes with uh, Lord Littlebrook as their manager. Uh, and I'm I'm blanking on their name now too, but I'm sure I'll think about it. Right after we, we click off. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. The next so then, question. So there's where, and then and then after that, he he went back home up to um, New Jersey way, Philadelphia, New Jersey way, and he was in the nightclub business. Okay. Jack, All right. Jack Victory was Jack in e- ECW for years. Yeah, he was. I think yeah. I, I was. I think that's right. That, that Steve Carino era of ECW. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. And now the question I've always wanted, and I might have answered, I think you answered this before in an interview I did with you before, Luke, and I just want the fans on a bigger form to know this. But I know you loved uh, your whole time as the Sheep Herders. You, you've told me that so many times in the stories. Then you go over to the WWE and become a bushwhacker and they don't let you really wrestle like you used to. Did you like that transit? Which one did you prefer? I know it was harder probably as a sheep herder. It's not, it's not, mate, it's not, they didn't know, they didn't, uh, they wanted us, they wanted us to be like partly sheep herder, partly moondog. And Butch said, Butch said to me, hey, the sheep herders have been on TBS from 1980 and to 88, off and on, off and on, you know what I mean? In the mm-hmm. NWA territories. And that, 
and the Moondogs have been on USA Network for about six years. He said, let's create something different. Hence, okay. we, Vince, Vince just gave us the name. We created the whole gimmick. Okay. Who we created, created the, the licking each other? Who created the licking the, the head thing? Who was that? Butch. And, and Luke, I think, you, I think it's fair. I think you need to tell okay. too. <laughs> what, folks? Uh, guys, do you have any last questions you want to throw up to anyone about anything? Yeah, I, I just want to, I want to touch on that because I know, I know we've talked about that before, and Luke's always made a point of it. Uh, Luke, with all due respect, was the smarter one of the two because, he, if I recall correctly, he usually kind of licked his own hand or his own arm. He says that Butch was actually the one that actually like licked everybody. Yeah, when, I, when, I grabbed, when I grabbed their head, I grabbed it like that, and I went like that. So I caught yeah. the end of my hand, but Butch would slime them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know what, that, folks? That would, not be, sorry, I have to, that would not be very COVID-friendly in uh, 2020. Oh. <laughs> uh, you have to wear your mask when you lick. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? This was this was a great discussion, guys. Uh, we we got in some really cool stuff. We got to talk some some real cool history. Before we take off, I'm going to go around get everyone to throw out whatever kind of social media or anything that you want to throw out there. Like for sure, I know Vance is working on a book. Talk about any of that kind of stuff. Throw out your uh, social media where you want people to to get a hold of you for merchandise, get a hold of you for whatever. Or if you don't even want to get a hold of them, we'll just put a blank. But that's up to you. So first of all, we'll start off with uh, we'll start off with Luke. Luke, what kind of stuff do you want people to get a hold of you at? Okay, folks, this weekend I'm doing a a virtual Facebook live with Steamboat with um with uh, what's the name stream? Uh, what's it called? Anyhow, Facebook Live WrestleHost. Okay. Go to go to facebook.com slash wrestlehost. Okay. Wrestlehost. And that this weekend and that and also uh, we we're coming out with a book, Blood, Sweat and Cheers. It's about <laughs> me and Butch. It's, and how the name came Blood, Sweat and Cheers, because our life was full of blood and sweat, and then we went to WWF and there was a cheers. So that's how the book that's I came up with that name. Well, it's copied, but that's how I got that name, Blood, Sweat, and Cheers. And, of course, if you need anything and you're not coming to my um, virtual thing, always go to Bushwagger, um, <coughs> bushwagger.com, my website, and you get T-shirts and, re- and memorabilia there. Also, my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and Bushwagger Loot. Perfect. Perfect. All right, Vance, what do you got going on? Uh, you know what? COVID's going on, so you can catch me nowhere. Uh, <laughs> I'm sitting at home, probably in this chair. Uh, been been uh, taking advantage of the COVID time, uh, very, very early days on the research uh, for a new history book uh, that's going to cover the whole of Canada and all of the territories we talked about today and more. Uh, and uh, so... It's been a lot of uh, pouring over digital copies of newspapers uh, from the 50s, 60s, and 70s over the last few weeks. Uh, but I'm very excited to see that project take shape. And uh, beyond that, uh, waiting for British Columbia to relieve some uh, health restrictions and let us get back to action. So, Excellent. Do you have uh, a social media you want to throw out for anything? Uh, anybody can find me on Facebook at Vance Nevada. Perfect. All right, Chief Atacula Kula. 
I actually am returning to the ring uh, this Saturday night for the first time since mid-March. <laughs> up, up, in, up in West Bend, West Covington. So for a, for a benefit show we're doing. And we, we did one a couple of years ago for a, um, a little boy. I think he was three at the time, had a heart condition. And he recently passed away. So we're doing a, a benefit show for his family. That'll be my first time back uh, since March, mid-March. Okay. And uh, you can get me at the usual places, Rod Atacula Kula or Chief Atacula Kula on Facebook, two different pages, uh, Chief underscore Atacula Kula on Instagram, and then uh, Chief Atacula Kula on Twitter. Excellent. Andy Anderson. All right. Well, I just, I want to shovel back over just because there's so little for me to do here. Uh, Vance, I'm just curious, what, what's kind of the year, like, how are you going about, you said like the 50s, are you going from the 50s to like 2000? What's kind of the, the span of your, your book coming up? Uh, well, the last one was about 1910 to 99, uh, but it was just Western Canada. And right. this one now is, uh, the challenge is just like the, the depth of stuff in Quebec where you get, you know, up to six shows a night happening in Quebec and you're <laughs> logging every single one. Uh, so the stats are going to be indisputed when they're actually compiled. Yeah. Uh, but, uh. Actually, today, just before the podcast, I just completed a, a career record for Gino Brito. Uh, oh, wow. It's going to be going out in the mail tomorrow. Uh, Very and cool. a full directory of uh, international wrestling from 80 to 87. Uh, and uh, similar, more small projects like that as we work on the bigger project. For, okay, for, I, just because he hasn't said it, I'm going to say it. For mm-hmm. anybody that is a Canadian wrestling fan, if you're a Canadian wrestling history fan, if there's anything you want to know, bombard this man bombard. with your questions. Yes, Vance Nevada, without a doubt, the the foremost authoritative individual for Canadian wrestling history. And he's also the man that broke me into the business. So if you have any issue oh, with me being in the business, blame. then that's who you can blame. Exactly. I'll be talking to you after, Vance. I'll be talking to you <laughs> after. And, and, and with Bushwhacker Luke, uh, because he was listing off so many things there. Luke, yeah. you also do, uh, you're also on Cameo, correct? Yeah, I'm Cameo. All right, so if you want a personalized message or anything like that from Bushwhacker Luke, uh, make sure you also you can uh, check him out on Cameo. For me, I am, I am but a humble social media person. Uh, you can catch me throughout the WPOV uh, podcast world. I do uh, shows global where we look at the AEW uh, Dynamite shows. Uh, I might appear on an aftermath, uh, depends what's going on. And I'm also here on the, the quarantine episodes with uh, Mr. Tom J and uh, the <coughs> gentleman, Elio uh, Canellis. Uh, personally, you can find me on Twitter, the Twitter machine at Andy Anderson PWA and on Instagram. And I always gotta make sure I don't mess this up. I'm that guy, TCB247. That's the letters I M T H A T G U Y T C B 247. Uh, I do a lot of uh, workout stuff on there, and I also kind of relive and try to uh, remember the glory days of, of my humble wrestling career. Excellent. Hey, can I ask you a question real quick? Yes, sir. Is Vance a better friend than Hulk Hogan? <laughs> Who isn't? Who isn't? <laughs> That is mean. <laughs> yeah, Vance is. You got to watch because yeah. Luke is also pretty good friends with Hulk yeah. Hogan. So you got to watch what you're saying yeah. there. You know what I mean, brother? <laughs> All right. Dave. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, guys, take your vitamins or say your prayers. <laughs>
<laughs> Elio, if uh, people want to write into uh, this show and ask questions, have uh, any anything answered, where would they write? On uh, Facebook at Wrestling POV Podcast, Instagram Wrestling POV One, and Twitter at Wrestling POV. Right, and as Andy said, there are a bunch of shows on the WPOV network, including Global Quarantine and Aftermath. And also, don't forget, the show that started it all, WPOV Wrestling, featuring Rick Serrano III and Tony Diaz, talking all about the WWE, and sometimes they can do a bit of a comparison with AEW. But folks, we also have a ton of stuff coming out in the next couple months. So much you might get sick of us, but you know what? We're guaranteed you'll have some fun doing it. So we want to thank you all for joining in. You guys were you guys were a lot of fun, a lot of great stories. I, got, I want to thank all four of you. You guys gave so much great fun, so much great information. And uh, fans, this you, you got to hear a really great show. And uh, I just want to say thank you. And tune in next week. We have yet another show, a new slate of guests, and we'll have a new topic, and we'll be talking about all kinds of things. So, Elio, as I ask you every day, say goodbye to good people. Fans, we will talk to you all next week.